Well, this morning we come to the end of our fairly short series that we've spent in the book of Psalms, which has been the prayer book of the people of God for millennia, actually. And during our series, we've looked at psalms of praise. We've looked at psalms of ascent, which were sung as the saints would literally go up to Jerusalem for feast days and special times of worship. We've talked about psalms of trust and psalms of lament, crying out to God in distress, and psalms of confession of sin. But there's one more category of psalm that we will look at this morning, and it's a category that we're often embarrassed of, a category that we often treat like that loud and brash and obnoxious relative that we wish others didn't have to be around at family gatherings. This morning, we're going to look at imprecatory psalms, psalms of curse. That's what an imprecation is, a curse Psalms calling on God's wrath to come upon the wicked. And as we always do in every place of Scripture, we're going to once again see Christ and His good news for guilty and condemned people held out for us, even in these Psalms. And so young Christians, young theologians, this morning I want you to answer this one question while you're listening, and you can discuss it with your family even a little bit later. Who was cursed by God? Judas Iscariot or Jesus? Who was cursed by God? Judas Iscariot or Jesus? And why? Why? This is the good news of the Lord Jesus as he speaks through the terrifying music of songs of curse. And we find it in Psalm 79 and parts of Psalm 69. And you can see it there in your bulletin on pages 6 and 7. A psalm of Asaph. O God, the nations have come into your inheritance. They have defiled your holy temple. They have laid Jerusalem in ruins. They have given the bodies of your servants to the birds of the heavens for food, the flesh of your faithful to the beasts of the earth. They have poured out their blood like water all around Jerusalem, and there was no one to bury them. We have become a taunt to our neighbors mocked and derided by those around us. How long, O Lord, will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? Pour out your anger on the nations that do not know you and on the kingdoms that do not call upon your name. For they have devoured Jacob and laid waste his habitation. Do not remember against us our former iniquities. Let your compassion come speedily to meet us for we are brought very low. Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for our sins for your name's sake. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Let the avenging of the outpoured blood of your servants be known among the nations before our eyes. Let the groans of the prisoners come before you. According to your great power, preserve those doomed to die. Return sevenfold into the lap of our neighbors the taunts with which they have taunted you, O Lord. But we, your people, the sheep of your pasture, will give thanks to you forever. From generation to generation, we will recount your praise. And then portions of Psalm 69, written by David. Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me, O Lord God of hosts. 
Let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel. For it is for your sake that I have that I have borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food. And for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. Let their own table before them become a snare. And when they are at peace, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and make their loins tremble continually. Pour out your indignation upon them and let your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents. For they persecute him whom you have struck down and they recount the pain of those you have wounded. Add to them punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from you. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. Let's pray. Father, we are a people who have been victimized. We are people who have been hurt ourselves. We often want vengeance for ourselves. We are often more concerned for vengeance for ourselves than we are even for the glory of your name, than we are even for the vengeance of God for God. And we know, Father, that you have promised such vengeance for yourself. And in that vengeance that you promise is the protection and deliverance of your people, but the defense of your character and your promises and your plan for the world. And so we say again this morning as we get ready to look into your holy word that you would further and advance your kingdom among us, that your kingdom would come in and through us more and more continually, and that it would do so this morning specifically and particularly as your spirit opens our eyes and helps us to see the gospel held out for us and held out for this world that we live in. Do these things for us. In the name of Jesus and by the Spirit, amen. You can be seated. Well, long before Jim Caviezel was being brutally beaten on camera as his role as Jesus in the movie The Passion of Christ, he was playing an entirely different role in another movie. In the early 90s, he played the Count of Monte Cristo in a movie that's loosely based on the classic book by Alexander Dumas. Maybe some of you have read that book. Maybe I would expect actually many of you have even seen the movie. It's a great movie, in my opinion. It's the story of a man who faithfully loves a woman, who's a loyal friend, and he's also a hardworking and obedient and faithful employee of his early 19th century shipping business in France. But through a series of events, Edmond Dantes is betrayed by three men. One of them, his closest friend, who falsely accuses him in order to take Edmond's lover for himself, what the Bible would call the lust of the flesh. A second man is Edmond's co-worker, 
who also joins in the conspiracy to falsely accuse Edmund because he wants Edmund's new lucrative job as a ship captain, what the Bible would call the lust of the eyes. And the third betrayer is a public prosecutor who falsely condemns Edmond to 14 years in a hellish island prison because Edmond knows some very embarrassing information about the prosecutor's father. And so he betrays Edmond for what the Bible would call the pride of life and ambition. And on the inside wall of Edmond's prison cell are large letters, and they've been deeply carved into the stone over the many years by other prisoners who've been there before. And the message reads, God will give me justice. But after years of recarving those same letters himself, 14 years actually, Edmond finally gives up carving. He stops carving And when meeting a fellow prisoner who's a priest, Edmund says to the priest, the writing on the wall has faded, just as God has faded from my heart. And the priest asks, so what has replaced him in your heart? And Edmund Dantes says, revenge. And this is only the first half of the movie because the rest of it is the story of Edmund's escape, his remaking himself into a rich aristocratic count, and then his slow, methodical journey to visit revenge on each one of his betrayers. The Count of Monte Cristo is about vengeance. It's about a man who decides to say, vengeance is not God's, it's mine. And I'll completely give myself over to getting it in order to make sure that it's done. And the truth is, we have all been in Edmond Dantes at some point, in some situation. We've known the sting of betrayal and hurt at the hand of a trusted friend at school, at the hand of a family member, a fellow Christian, a brother or sister in the Lord, Even a pastor or a Christian leader, we've known the sting of betrayal and victimization by such people. We have suffered injustice and we've wanted revenge. And as upside down as this might sound right now, the imprecatory psalms, the psalms of curse, are not about you and I finally getting the vengeance we want for ourselves. These psalms are about God getting His vengeance, which is what our souls really need, even if it isn't what they always want. What our souls really need is God getting vengeance for Himself. It's not what we always want, but it's what we truly need, actually. And we'll come back to this a little bit later. But take a look at the first four verses of Psalm 79. Because this psalm of curse, it's taking place in the middle of a story. And it's connected to the rest of the Bible's story as well. This psalm is written as the Babylonians come into Jerusalem and the days of Jeremiah the prophet to besiege it and to destroy it. Because a nation that does not know God has come into God's very inheritance, as verse 1 says. 
that come to God's people, God's city, this special place that he has chosen on earth for himself, for people to come and worship him, at least at this point in the biblical story. And the Babylonians have laid the temple and they have laid Jerusalem in ruins. Note verses 2 and 3. They've given the bodies of your servants to the birds of the heavens for food, the flesh of your faithful to the beasts of the earth. They have poured out their blood like water all around Jerusalem and there was no one to bury them. We've seen this language before. It's covenant language. It's language that was a part of God's covenant, God's promises to the people through Moses, but it's the covenant language of curse from Deuteronomy chapter 28. God promises to bless His people in their land if they walk in faithfulness and true worship of Him in the first half of Deuteronomy 28, but He also promises to bring great curses on them if they follow after the idols of the nations around them in the second half of that chapter. And one part of that curse language was that the bodies of his people would be left out, exposed, eaten by birds and other animals of carrion. They wouldn't be buried. They wouldn't be given the dignity that God and his people give to the human body throughout Scripture. But instead, they would be left out to rot as a sign of great judgment. This language of curse, it's also in Jeremiah 7 and 16, because God, through his prophet, was reminding his people of these things. That these things would come upon them for breaking the covenant, just as Deuteronomy had said centuries before. John Calvin, the great reformer and other commentators, have noted that what's happening in this psalm, in Psalm 79, it's more than just a tragedy, it's actually sacrilege. It's profane. It's to take what is supposed to be holy and set apart, namely God's city, God's place of worship, God's temple, God's people, and to treat it like human waste. That's what's happening in Psalm 79 by the Babylonians. It's a sacrilege because so many of God's own people have left their true worship of Yahweh. They've committed sacrilege. They've broken covenant and faithfulness with Him. And it's sacrilege because people who have no knowledge or respect or love for God's covenant are treating His chosen city and His chosen people this way. And so Asaph, the writer, says in verse 5, How long, O Lord, how long will those who do call on Your name suffer along with those who don't? Pour out your anger on the nations that do not know you, on the kingdoms that do not call upon your name, but are killing those who do. Look at verse 10. Why should the nation say, where is their God? In other words, they're mocking you, God. Show up, God, and prove yourself true by bringing judgment upon them. Verse 12 Return sevenfold into the lap of our neighbors the taunts with which they have taunted you, O Lord. Consistently, throughout the great story of salvation in the Bible, the language of God's wrath and God's curse are about God avenging himself against the wicked who set themselves against his righteousness and his grace and his people. 
In fact, the language of curse that we read about earlier concerning the bodies of the dead lying exposed, this same language reappears at the end of the biblical story in its ultimate form seen as the greatest fulfillment of curse and judgment in the entire Bible in Revelation chapter 19. Because in this chapter, we find an angel of God flying throughout the heavens and he's preparing everyone for Jesus' return to earth on a war horse. And this angel, this angel, he's calling out to all the birds of the sky saying, Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. It's the language of curse and judgment that we see repeated throughout the biblical story, throughout the biblical narrative. Because ultimately, and contrary to what is sometimes the liberation theology of our day, the great curse and judgment of God is not ultimately about freeing the socially and politically oppressed from slavery, although God cares about that. It's not ultimately about taking away from the haves and giving to the have-nots, although God cares about that too. It's about vindicating and it's about defending and showing to be true the great holiness and promises and character of our God. And His curse will come upon all who hate Him and His people, be they haves or have-nots, be they small or great, be they kings or paupers. And this message of Scripture ought to make us feel very uncomfortable. It is not meant to make us feel good. It is not meant to sound positive and encouraging and played on Caleb. It's not a message designed to give us sweet dreams. But it is a message that should give us cold sweats for a world that needs Jesus as their Savior, so they will not have to know Him as their executioner. Because the Bible presents Him as both. And this brings up the difficult question that we have to consider. How do we approach these psalms of curse? How do we as God's people, how do we as Christ's body, the temple of the Spirit, who have been forgiven and cleansed, and who have known God's great mercy through Jesus for our sin. That's every bit as great as the sin of the world. How do we pray these songs? And the answer is we pray them like we pray all the psalms. We pray them in Jesus, and we pray them with Jesus. We pray them in Jesus, and we pray them with Jesus. Because the songs of curse, the imprecatory psalms, are just like all the psalms in the sense that they don't just stop at pointing to Jesus, although they do point to Him, but they're also ultimately God's words. They're Jesus' words, meaning that they're prayed by Jesus and fulfilled by Him in His life. There are several imprecatory psalms in the Bible, but I'm giving you just a sampling here from Psalm 69 in your bulletin. Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me, O Lord God of hosts. Let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor 
through me, O God of Israel. For it is for your sake that I have borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. These words were written by the human hand of King David, and they applied to King David in his special historical circumstance, but they ultimately come from God. And his son, God's son, who will also be David's son in David's future, ultimately prays them through David, and then he comes in the incarnation and lives out these words and fulfills them in his ministry. It is Jesus who prays, let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me. It is Jesus who prays, for it is for your sake, Father, that I have borne reproach and that dishonor has covered my face. When Christ was forsaken by all, including his disciples, Jesus fulfills, I have become a stranger to my brothers and an alien to my mother's sons. And John quotes from verse 9 in chapter 2 of his gospel when Jesus is overturning the tables of the money changers who are defiling God's temple for their own profit. And Jesus says, Zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. We pick up again in verse 19. You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. Jesus lives these words. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink as he was treated on the cross and at his passion. And so here we clearly see these verses lived out and fulfilled by Jesus. And as the New Testament proclaims everywhere, through the words of Jesus himself and his apostles and their letters, the church, those who have believed that Jesus is who he claims to be, those who have believed that Jesus died on a Roman cross to be our sacrificial lamb, to take our place, to take the penalty for our sins, those who believe that Jesus rose again to defeat sin and death, the church, Of all ages, his people are in him. His people are in him. David was and is in him. Meaning that David, along with all Old Testament believers, and along with all New Testament believers like those in the theater this morning, pray these prayers along with Jesus because his righteousness and his holiness is given to us as ours by grace, but so is his suffering and so is his rejection by the world. That's taught too in the New Testament. We're not just given his grace by means of justification, being declared righteous and being declared holy in God's sight, we also share in his sufferings. We also share in his persecutions. We also share in his rejection, which is taught many, many, many places in the New Testament. Paul says it so clearly in Romans chapter 8. 
So in understanding better how it is that we can pray these psalms, it's important for us to know that in these songs of curse, you're going to find two covenant representatives in these songs. Two types of human beings that represent all human beings. You're either in Christ, you're either in Jesus, the first representative, and therefore you share his righteousness and suffering by faith, or you are a hater of God, a hater of his holiness, a hater of his grace, a hater of his people, as the other representative in these Psalms. And we see these curses addressed to this other representative in his people, beginning in verse 22. Let their own table before them become a snare. And when they are at peace, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see. And make their loins tremble continually. Pour out your indignation upon them. And let your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents. For they persecute him whom you have struck down. And they recount the pain of those who you have wounded. Add to them punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from you. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. And my friends, this representative is pictured for us in the life of Judas and all those who betrayed and falsely accused and condemned Jesus. In fact, and we won't turn in this morning because I've already given you way too many verses to look at as it is, But if you were to go to Acts chapter 1, verse 20, you would see Peter quoting from this psalm, from verse 25, and applying it directly to Judas. Peter applies verse 25 from this psalm and curses from another imprecatory psalm, Psalm 109, and he applies them directly to Judas in Acts chapter 1, verse 20. That was a lot of theology coming at you very quickly. And I don't blame you a bit. If any of it was lost in translation, if so, that's my fault. That's not anybody else's. But here's what this means practically for us. The curses of these psalms are not aimed at the person who cut you off in traffic. The curses of these psalms are not aimed at those who have even slandered you on Facebook are those who have lied about us or fired us from our jobs under false pretenses or treated us unkindly. They're not meant to be prayed against those who have merely wronged us, who've made us angry and upset. Because neither David nor Asaph nor even Jesus is seeking primarily personal vengeance in these psalms. They're seeking the vengeance of God for God because it's His name and His reputation, and His promises, and His character, and His holiness on the line in all of the songs of curse. And yes, part of the way that Judas and his children mock God and attack God is by attacking His people. They cannot climb into heaven with their swords, and so they come into our houses to get at God ultimately. And so, yes, God's avenging of himself is him often avenging us. For the world comes at us to get to him. That's how it works. Do you know when we often, most often I should say, pray the spirit of these psalms of curse? 
Most often when we as a congregation enter into actually praying what these songs of curse are asking for, we prayed at least twice a month together at the beginning of the service. And then we pray it together at the end of every service like we're going to do here in a minute. Twice a month, we pray the Lord's Prayer and we say, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're praying for a whole lot in that line. We're asking for a whole lot in that line as our series on the Lord's Prayer partly covered last year. But we're praying for the same thing that we're going to pray for a little bit later at the end of our service. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. We say it at the end of every week. You know what we're saying when we're asking for that? Here's what we're saying. We're saying, how long, O Lord? Like in Psalm 79, verse 5. How long will you wait and watch evildoers blaspheme your name? How long will you wait and let false shepherds twist the words of your scriptures and lead people astray? How long will you let those who hate you persecute Jesus like Saul of Tarsus did by pouring out their hatred on Christians and torturing Christians, women and even small children even, like is going on in the Middle East right now? How long are you going to let that happen? How long are you going to let your righteousness be laughed at by those who sell women and children as slaves across the world to be used and abused in whatever way their abusers see fit? How long are you going to let that happen? Let your kingdom come. Because when it comes, we know that to make room for it, you're going to take the kingdom of the wicked one and all his followers and you will lay it to waste in a manner that looks like the flood of Genesis. In a manner that looks like the fire and the brimstone of Sodom and Gomorrah. And so do this for the glory of your name. Do this so that the laughing and mocking of you comes to an end. Do this because we as your people are in love with your holiness. Not because we live in perfect holiness, we don't, but because we love who you are, all of you. Your holiness and justice included with your righteousness and your mercy and your grace. We love all of you. This is the spirit of the psalmist who sings a song of curse. These psalms ask us, Are we ashamed of the imprecatory psalms? Here's really kind of the deeper question. I think it's a question we have to ask. It's a question the church of our day has to ask. Are we ashamed of who God is? That's really what the imprecatory psalms ask of us to think about. Because I would say to you that our culture, and I think this is including more and more of the church, We're actually not shocked or scandalized by grace anymore. I recognize that's not always true. I'm speaking in broad categories. It takes a lot for us to be scandalized by grace, and here's why. Because it used to be, especially in the 19th and much of the 20th centuries, that we used to believe sin and judgment were real. But we're not shocked by grace anymore, and we're not scandalized by it because we've redefined it. 
in our culture. We've redefined it to mean tolerance and license and enablement and empowerment to be what you want to be, to be the real you, to actualize the real you. And what this means in real terms is that grace becomes enablement for disobedience so that grace, it's no longer scandalous as it should be. Grace should be very scandalous, but it's not when it's redefined to be that. Grace is no longer grace. Instead, what our culture and too much of the church of this culture, and increasingly so, now finds scandalous is God's holiness. That's what we find scandalous. And without a belief in the glory and the beauty and the terror of God's holiness, there's no love for the glory and the beauty and the freedom of God's grace. If God is not holy and the relentless judge for all who hate him and his people, then grace and love and mercy don't stay. Grace, love, and mercy, as Christians have understood these things from the Bible for all of these centuries. Grace and mercy become what God owes us, what we deserve. Grace and mercy become what we should expect from a very tolerant God. And the songs of curse remind us that a God who looks like that, who dispenses grace and mercy, redefined to look like that, this God doesn't exist. He's an idol. He's a figment of our culture's imagination. He's a false God who lives in the dreams of hedonistic people because deep down they know that the real God would only appear in their nightmares, and so they remake him. They redefine him. Because it's much easier to sleep thinking about a God like that. At the beginning, we talked about how we have all been in the place of Edmond Dantes. We've all suffered betrayal and injustice. And I don't want to say that glibly. I don't want to say that lightly. When I say betrayal and injustice, I'm not talking about the person who cuts us off in traffic. I'm not even talking about some of the daily, regular offenses you and I undergo and take from those around us. Some of us have suffered serious betrayal and injustice. Sexual abuse, physical abuse. We've been lied about at work. We've lost jobs. Our families have suffered. We've gone through a lot. And I want you to know that these songs of curse, they actually free you. They free you. They free us up tremendously. Because we all want to be Edmund Dantes as he makes his enemies suffer. But the good news of the imprecatory psalms frees us from this. Because perhaps one of the greatest reasons that God does not grant us the pursuit of our own vengeance is because of what we become in the process. Dantes, in the the story, when pursuing vengeance on those who've unjustly treated him, he doesn't just stop at making them pay. He doesn't stop at the misery of his enemies. Because his vengeance brings so much pain and loss to so many other innocent people. And you know what? Dantes, at that point, he doesn't even care. He doesn't care. 
He's a man who has made vengeance his idol. And a person who has vengeance for an idol is a fearsome monster indeed. And we don't know how to pursue vengeance without it becoming an idol. We just don't. And so these psalms take the sword out of our hand. They let you drop the sword. They let you put it down for what, for what others have done to you. And they help us see the hand that truly gets to hold it, the hand that truly gets to wield it much better than we ever could. And when we contemplate that terrible hand with that terrible sword, it moves us to pray for our enemy, that they will be saved and that they will be spared such terrible judgment that is far worse than we could bring on them. And yet to be comforted, it also helps us to be comforted. Comforted in the knowledge that one way or another justice will come for all the evil that's ever been done, including the terrible evils that have been done against us, because God is just. Vengeance is His, as Mark read from us in Romans 12. It's His in His time and in His way for His glory and for our good. And because of that, we can respond to evil with good because the sword isn't ours to hold. But I'm going to end with this. I'll end with this. Jesus doesn't just pray these psalms of curse as the one who's betrayed, as the one seeking God's justice for the sake of his name. He does do that, but he doesn't just do that. The good news is that Jesus himself bears the curse that he himself calls down on God's enemies. He himself is the cursed singer. Look at Psalm 69, verse 26 again. For they, the Judases, persecute him, Jesus, whom you, God the Father, have struck down. And so we hear the voice of Jesus saying, You struck me down, Father, for the sake of loving your people, by offering me up as a sacrifice for their sins so that they can be washed from their guilt, so that they can forever be free from your curses. I have become their curse instead. Because the truth is, we're not just Edmond Dantes, we're not just the persecuted innocent of the imprecatory Psalms. We are Edmond's betrayers too, committing the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life and millions of sins. We have been victimized, but we have also victimized others, all of us. And so the only truly innocent singer of these psalms, the Lord Jesus, becomes the truly cursed singer by hanging on a cross. For the Old Testament says, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. On the same day, young Christians, young theologians, on the same day, both Jesus and Judas were hanged on trees. Same day. Judas hanged himself, cursed of God for his own betrayal. Jesus was innocent, hanged on a cross, but also cursed of God. Cursed of God for our sin, not his. 
So that if we believe in his sacrifice and his rising again, we can be free from the judgment and curse to come upon God's enemies. And so believe in his becoming a curse for you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Father, I pray right now, all of us in this room, as we have said, as I have said many times, we've known the sting of betrayal and pain and offense and abuse from, other, from others in this world, just as your son knew those same things in even greater measure because of who he is. So we have known them and we have felt them. And I pray for those that have known such things, which is all of us to differing degrees, that you would take the sword out of our hand, that you would let us drop it, that you would let us give it over to you, and know that you will do a far greater job of avenging your name, and even avenging us in Jesus, because of who you are and your promises, than we can even do for ourselves. I pray as well, Father, for those of us in this room, all of us, we ourselves who have cursed you. We ourselves who have betrayed you because of our sin, our many sins against others, every one of them being sins against you as well. We need Christ to be the curse, the cursed one in our place, the cursed singer in our place. And so I pray that you would increase the faith of those who already have it, to be assured that there's no curse waiting for them, for Jesus has borne the full brunt of it. And for those that have not known Christ as their cursed one, for those that have not placed their faith in Christ as the one who took your curse in their place, would you give them eyes to see and faith to see this morning? Do these things out of your love for us. In Jesus' name and by the Spirit, amen.